once again to all of you. Glad you joined us. I know some people are signing up for bottles because I see Jess and Marie furiously working over at the table to put down names on the sign-up sheet. So good job. Keep that up. Uh, yeah, it was really... Sorry about... Uh, and Marie's also eating sausage, apparently. But the... Uh, yeah, sorry about us uh, getting more bottles. I went down to pick up the bottles, and I was planning on picking up 40, and a lady came to the door, and I was like, you, you got 60? She was like, yeah. I was like, let's do that. So, um, yeah, we're going to uh, support them in a, in a great way. So thank you for participating with that. Uh, we're in a series called Truish, where we are taking some sort of Christian phrases or things Christians say and trying to answer the question, is that actually true or is it false? Or is it true-ish? Somewhere in the middle. I think what we're going to find is most of them are true-ish. And so today we're getting to one that I mean, we say this all the time. I I have had it said to me for sure, and I'll, I'll talk about a, a instance of that in just a minute. But the phrase is, you ready? Are you ready? I got I got Jess here in the table, and I've got Maria at the table. If I'm talking to someone in the room, that's who I'm talking to here. All right, here's the phrase. You ready? God will never give you more than you can handle. And then we had three kids. <laughs> Just said, and then we had three kids. God will never give you more than you can handle. Now, you might notice a theme as we go through this series that a lot of these phrases are things that Christians say to try and encourage somebody when they're in a difficult time. So usually this is Christianese, yeah. so we're calling Okay, so like Christianese. Yeah, so when someone is facing a difficult thing or something drops, something happens, something changes, something scary comes up, then often what we'll say to someone is, don't worry, God will never give you more than you can handle. Well, is that true? It's well-intentioned for sure. I think every time it's well-intentioned, although sometimes we can use these phrases as like a push-off for people. Like, let me just drop this cliche and then I can move on to the other thing I was doing. But more often than not, this is well-intentioned, just trying to encourage someone to say, hey, you can get through this, okay? You're strong enough. You can make it. This isn't going to consume you. It's not going to crush you. And that's, that's a good thing to say to someone. So, so I'm not going to disparage that statement at all. But is it really true? I distinctly remember somebody saying this to me. I was in a really bad situation. I've talked about this multiple times. I won't go into detail, but I was... I had the, the church that I was a part of was changing drastically and I was losing my job and our family was having to move and it felt like everything was falling down around me. I felt like, you ever been in that situation where it's, when one thing changes, you can handle that. When two things changes, it gets a little bit challenging. When everything feels like it's changing, it's very overwhelming and you don't even know what to do or how to think about it. I'm sure you've been there the same way I have. And... Somebody looked at me in the middle of that. Somebody looked at me and they said, don't worry, John. God will never give you more than you can handle. And I remember my first reaction was, you can't say that now. <laughs> God must not understand how much I can handle. God must think I'm pretty strong if, if I can handle this. I, it, it did not encourage me. Let's just put it that way. I did not find it encouraging. I found it very frustrating because it just told me that for me, from my perspective, like that person had no clue what I was going through. They didn't, they couldn't possibly understand the weight that I was carrying because no person is supposed to be able to carry this kind of weight. That's what I thought. And so I didn't find it incredibly encouraging. And so what I want to do today, that phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle, it is taken out of a scripture, out of a verse from the Bible 
And so what I want to do today, rather than saying, is that phrase true or not, I want to look at the scripture that that comes from and talk about what that scripture really means. And we're going to apply and use some of the techniques that we talked about from the first week of this series when we talked about how to properly understand a scripture because we don't want to just pull any idea out of the Bible that's sort of biblical-ish or true-ish and then apply that to our life because we're asking God to do something that maybe he hasn't said he's going to do or holding him to a promise that he never actually made or expecting something to happen that isn't reasonable to expect to happen. So what we're going to do with this phrase is we're going to go to the verse that it comes out of and take a look at what that verse really means. It's found in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians, um, which is... Here we go. Ready? It's, it's here. So, yeah. So if you have your Bible, if you have an identical Bible to me, which is not likely, that would be page uh, 1018. All right, I'm just giving you time to get there. So you can pull it up on the app on your phone and, and find it that way. Very easy to do it that way. You can pull up version if you have the Bible app on your phone. Uh, you can open a, a printed Bible. We are also going to put it up on the screen for you. All right, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to read part of verse 13. Here's a hint, all right? We're reading part of a verse. There's, there's a hint that something may be, may be askew, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Part of verse 13 says, But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That sounds very similar to God will never give you more than you can handle. Right? He will never let you be tempted beyond what you are able. But even just on that little section of verse, we can already tell that something else is going on here. Right? There's, there's a couple words, and important words, that are there that aren't in the phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle. For example, the word tempt. God will never tempt you or never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. What does that word tempt mean? Uh, so to tempt someone is to test them. It's to put them to the test. A temptation is a test of character or integrity. How will you respond when the pressure is on? And if you've been watching the social media lately, I haven't, but someone who does watch it told me that there's this thing that's real popular right now called the fruit snack challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. I've heard yeah, that. yeah. I mean, Jess told me. She's <laughs> she's very socially media aware. She keeps me, uh, you know, on top of everything that's happening in the, the digital world because I live in an analog world. And uh, so there's this thing called the fruit snack challenge. She told me about it, so I went and I checked it out. And what they do, what a parent does is they take their phone and they set it up to record their child, little, little children, to record their child. They take fruit snacks, they put them in front of the kid, and they say, now, don't touch the fruit snacks. There's a really cute one that was on Good Morning America with twins. You can go watch it. It's, it's honestly a little brutal. But, Silo and Merritt are watching right now. They uh -huh. have pictures of them watching, so maybe they could do this for us. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so Jess said that Shiloh and Merritt are watching right now because... Um, they, they're posted pictures on social media somewhere that they're watching the message right now. So maybe just do that with them. Okay. So Aaron, Kayla, you do it. Okay. Ben, good morning. All right. So anyway, all right. So you do that and you post it and tag us in it and we'll all watch it. It'll be hilarious. All right. You put the, you put the fruit snacks in front of the kid and then you record them and you say, don't eat this. And then you walk away and you just record what they do. 
All right, and it's hilarious to watch. The twins were really funny, I'll tell you, from, from the Good Morning America's um, thing. And, uh, but anyway, <clears throat> so that's what temptation is. It's a test of your character. It's a test of your integrity. Now, that could go well or it could not go well. So the question is, is says God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. The question is, I guess in some cases, is, does God tempt us? Does he tempt us? Well, James, uh, who is the half-brother of Jesus, James actually talks about this in what he wrote, James chapter 1, and he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And that's not eternal death, that's death now. That's that's our life crumbling around us, okay? So, what James is saying is, God does not tempt us to sin. God very well may test us, but he doesn't tempt us to sin. When God tests us, he's not hoping we will fail, he's hoping we will succeed, Tempting someone hoping they will fail is called entrapment, (laughs) all right? Which some people might think that's what the fruit snack challenge is. (laughs) You're asking for it to put fruit snacks in front of a kid. You want them to to fail, right? You don't want them to succeed. It's not funny if they succeed. It's only funny if they fail. So, which that sounds terrible, but um, to do to children. But uh, nevertheless, yeah, yeah. So entrapment is when you set up a situation to tempt someone intentionally, hoping that they will go for it, they will fall for it, and they will take the bait, and then you can bring down punishment on them. That's entrapment. That's not what God does, all right? When God tests us, he's not, it's not for evil purpose. When he tests us, it's giving us opportunities to succeed, all right? So it's a very different thing. But in 1 Corinthians, so I wanted to make sure I said that, but 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is not talking about a good test. It's not talking about um, giving, having God giving us an opportunity to prove, you know, righteousness or whatever. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. That's talking about a sinful temptation. And James is really clear, sinful temptation is not God's fault. Things get put in front of us. And it is our own selfish desire that creates that temptation, that want or that need for that thing, to do that thing or to have that thing. And when that gives birth, that's sin. And when sin happens, it destroys our life, okay? So it's about sinful temptation. But God is faithful. Remember it says, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Okay, so God is not going to let me get into a situation where I am not strong enough to overcome the temptation in front of me. Which begs the question, am I strong enough to overcome temptation? Am I strong enough to say no every time I want to say yes? Am I strong enough to, by sheer willpower to do everything that I want to do? Are you? What, what you answer. <laughs> no for me. It's a no for me. No for you. No for you too. Paul, there's even a spot in scripture where Paul says, I don't understand myself. I know the good I ought to do and I don't do it. I, 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 I intend well. I, I, I feel like I'm strong. I feel like I know what's right and what's wrong, but I inevitably do the thing that I hate. This is, this is part of the human condition. It's part of the sin nature within us. We are not strong enough to overcome the temptation in our life by our own strength. 
But we could easily read that verse to think that's what is saying. God will never give you more than you can handle. You're strong enough. God will never let you be tempted beyond what you are able. You can say no to every, you, you have the strength to overcome it. But we know even in logic, even in personal experience, that's not true. There has to be something else going on here. So, so, and there is. So let's zoom out just a little bit. Let's zoom out just a little bit and read the entire verse, not just the section that we love to copy and paste and pull out. The entire verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. We all, we all deal with the same stuff. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but, and this is really important, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So it's not just my sheer willpower and saying no and figuring out how to be in or out of the situation, whatever it is. It's that when I am tempted, God will provide me a way of escape so that I am able to bear it. It's not my strength that overcomes sin. It's God's strength, God's wisdom, and God's power that overcomes sin in my life. But when he puts the way in front of me, I got to take it. (laughs) I have to do what he says to do. My ability to overcome temptation is dependent on my ability to take God's way of escape or my commitment to it. Your ability to fight temptation is dependent on taking God's way of escape. James, we just read from him a minute ago, he puts it this way, again in James chapter 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, tests, temptations. This is, this is in the context, it's not just, oftentimes we read James and we see count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We often talk about persecution, but it's more than just persecu- someone coming at you for your faith. It's a trial, it's a temptation, it's a test. When, you, when, you, when the pressure is on you, count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, and now I want to I point out that this, again, is a verse that often gets plucked up out of the context and used, that just ask God for wisdom. It's asking God for wisdom in the presence of a trial or a test. It's in the context of when we are tested, when we are tried, when the pressure is on, when the situation is difficult, and we might be tempted to react sinfully We need to count it all joy because it can produce patience. And if in that situation you lack wisdom, you don't know what to do, you don't have the strength to overcome it, you don't know how to get out, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach and it will be given to him. So James isn't just talking about wisdom always and, and forever. He's talking about when you're in trial, when you don't know what to do, when you don't know how to overcome it, when you don't know how to respond to the situation as it's happening, Ask for wisdom. And if you ask for wisdom, if you look for the way of escape, God will give it to you. He will show you that path. 
but let him ask, and this is verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For who doubts? He who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not the man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So I get myself in a situation where I'm tempted to sin. I'm tempted to react selfishly. I'm tempted to react fleshly instead of responding in the spirit. And so I have to ask God for the way out. I have to ask him for wisdom. But I don't ask him for wisdom as one option among many. I ask in faith. And I say, God, show me the way I'm going to take. Not show me an option and I'll decide whether that's better than the option I want to take. I'll weigh that. Yeah. Yeah, let me take that into consideration, God. No, we need, we need to ask him for wisdom and we need to ask in faith, trusting that he has the right way, showing that we're going to take it rather than asking with doubt and with saying, yeah, maybe I'll do that or maybe that'll work or maybe my way will work. That's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all of his ways and, and he's going to end up crashing. You know, Imagine for a moment, uh, imagine for a moment that you are in a little fishing boat out on High Rock Lake some of you might be right now. You might be watching on your phone, this streaming this. That would never happen to Jess. Streaming the service on your phone on High Rock Lake right now, um, which also couldn't happen because there's no service. There's no there's a service out there. But <laughs> and you're and you're fishing. All right, you're out on the boat. You're in a little fishing boat, little metal boat, and you're fishing. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a storm comes in and just throws everything into chaos. The wind is blowing, the, way, the rain is coming down, lightning, is, lightning doesn't crash, lightning is flashing, thunder is crashing, waves are coming up all around the boat, waves are starting to come into the boat, and you say, God, I don't know what to do, get me out of this. <laughs> show, me how to, show me how to get back to shore. And all of a sudden, you see a very small break in the water, a very small path where the water is not as turbulent as everything else around it. And it's leading you straight to Goat Island. Yeah, your salvation, Goat Island. And it's leading you straight to Goat Island. What do you do in that scenario? Well, either you take the way that God laid out to take and you make a beeline for Goat Island or you endure the storm. It's your choice. No, no temptation has overcome us except that which is common to man. We are all in the same boat. But God will not let us be tempted beyond what we are able. But he will, along with the temptation, make a way out that we're able to withstand it. But we have to take that path. So it doesn't do us well when, when we find that we're falling into, maybe it's a habitual sin that you constantly find yourself falling into. And it feels like it's constantly overtaking you, constantly overtaking you. And then we pray to God and we say, God, would you please help me to stand up against this temptation? And we talk to some other people about it and we read scripture and we feel like God you know, gives us an answer on how we're supposed to overcome it. But then we don't do what he said. Because, because it's hard or because we don't want to? Because, because we don't think it'll work? Because someone else suggested something. Because someone else suggested something else that sounds better? Because, because either we, maybe we don't think that the, the plan will work or maybe we don't want to work the plan? Yeah. 
God says you need to have accountability. You need to tell someone about that sin that you have in your life. Like, ooh, but I don't really want to do that because, you know, then somebody would, they would know. And I don't want to kidding. Is there, God, is there a way that we could do this without me having to tell anybody? <laughs> that, would, that would be so much better for me. So, <laughs> And God's like, no, I made a way of escape. And it comes through accountability. So unless you're willing to tell somebody, it's not going to get better. You know, or, or you feel like God tells you that, that man, I'm supposed to, I got to stay away from these friends. Okay, I find that I'm falling into maybe, let's say it's a dependence on alcohol. I find that I'm drinking way too much when I'm with these people. And God says, you got to get away from them for a little while. You got to distance yourself from them, like real social distancing. You have to distance yourself from them for a little while. Like, yeah, but I mean, but what am I going to do on Friday then? Am I, am I just going to sit alone by myself? Or... So maybe, maybe what I could do, no, no, you know what, God, maybe instead of distancing myself from them for, for, for a time, maybe I could just go there and I could, I could just, you know, I could just drink something else. I'll just take something else and that's what I'll drink. But then you find that when you get there, you can't withstand the temptation because you're around the people. Why do we think that we could have a better plan than God has for, for getting away from sin in our life? Uh, if, if I, if, if I have... You know, if in my career I find that I'm, I'm growing increasingly greedy or having to cut corners or take advantage of people, and, and, and I, I'm praying, God, how do I get away from this? How do I change this in, in my life? And God says, you got to get away from that job. you got to quit your job. You're like, no, no. I, I mean, I can't do that because, of, because I have bills. And meanwhile, God is still moving in our heart, and he's saying, no, you, this is your way of escape. you got to get out of here. And you got to trust me that when you get out of here, I got something else going for you and that you're going to be okay. But you got to get out of here. Like, but no, but God, I can't do that. I can't. Maybe, maybe there's a way I could just change what I do at work. We're always trying to go halfway. And I find that, that I do that all the time, that God provides me a way of escape and I'll take it about halfway. Or I'll try to find another way around. It's not going to work. We, when we're tested, we have to ask God to show us the way. We have to believe that he has the way, and we have to take it the way that he says. See, this verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, is not about just mustering the strength to overcome your situation. It is about learning to lean on God for strength and direction to overcome sin. And to not constantly get dragged back into the same things over and over and over and over again. The things that destroy our life. The things that break our relationships. Our relationship that, that disrupt our relationship with God. That disrupt our relationship with other people. To, when we're putting on the, the character of the world. And we're putting, on, uh, putting back on our old sinful nature. And letting that live and reign in our life. Rather than letting the spirit live and reign in our life. Rather than pursuing righteousness and justice. And what is good and what is pure and what is godly. We're sliding back into all those things. It's about God giving us the strength to overcome those things. And us having the determination or the, the willingness to do what he says so that can happen. Let's actually, to, to even better understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians 10, let's zoom out even further. 
so we can see exactly what kind of temptation they're dealing with. And then we can apply it even better to, to our situations. So let's, we're going to go to the very beginning of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, starting right in verse 1. All right, so Paul says to him, <clears throat> Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. He's drawing back to the nation of Israel as they came out of slavery in Egypt. And he's saying, hey, these, these, are, these are our fathers, okay? And we can relate to them, right? They, they were all one. They were all the same. We are like them. He says, all passed through the, the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. He's saying, so, so their faith was in Christ who was coming, same as our faith, faith is in Christ who has come, all right, and died on the cross to pay for our sin, rose again. We all put our faith, we're all in the same boat here. But, look at verse 5, but with most of them, looking way back, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples to the intent. Here's the point. This, this, is, this is what Paul is trying to say to them. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Okay, so it seems that the problem that Paul is trying to address with the church in Corinth is that they are lusting after or desiring evil things the same way, looking way, 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 way back, the nation of Israel, many of them lusted after evil things, desired evil things. And, and he gives examples now of the consequences of that kind of behavior. He said, do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a reference. I'm a, he's going to give five, four examples here. Let me tell you where he's referencing back to, just because we may not have the same understanding of the Old Testament they did at this time. Um, but this is a reference back to Numbers or Exodus 32. This is when Moses was up on the mountain and he was getting the Ten Commandments from God. And while he was up there, the people decided he'd been gone too long and they wanted a God to worship. And so they, they made a calf out of gold and they begin worshiping the golden calf. And then Moses comes down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, sees that all of this is happening, and he busts them into a million pieces. <laughs> right, he can't believe that they so quickly turn to worshiping a false god. This is idolatry. All right, so he says, As in the, and it says right there, after they make the golden, the golden calf, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So it's a, it's a reference to their idolatry. Nor, verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. This is a reference to something we read about in Numbers um, chapter 25. And this is where people from the nation of Israel saw women from the tribe of Moab and thought, they look good. And they started um, keeping this PG since we have children watching. <laughs> They, uh, that tells you enough. So they, they engaged in things they should not have engaged in. And then along with that, they would go to the feasts 
of these women who worshipped a god called Baal. And while they were at these feasts, they would be worshiping the god Baal, they would be making sacrifices to Baal, and then they would take the food that was sacrificed to Baal, and they would eat it as part of their celebration. And the Israelites were participating in all of this because they were interested in the Moabite women. And so God judged them for that. That's what verse 8 is talking about. Again, it's idolatry, and in this case, sexual sin. Verse 9 nor let us tempt Christ or test Christ, right? That's what that word tempt means, to test him, put him to test, see what he'll do. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. This happens in Numbers chapter 21 when the people are upset because they don't have food and they say, what did you do, Moses? Did you bring us out into the desert to die? It'd be better for us to go back to Egypt where we had food. They complain, they do this kind of complaining all the time. Um, It would be better for us to go back to where we had. And God sends serpents into the camp and they bite people. And and that's actually, it's an amazing story. Jesus references a story in John chapter 3. We talked about this in our series on John that we did at the beginning of the year. Uh, because the way they were saved from that is Moses made a bronze serpent and held it up. And anybody who looked at the serpent, which was being held up, um, just a trusting look at that would save them from from the bite of of the the snake. And so um, Jesus uses that as an analogy to what he did, that he was lifted up and that a trusting look at him is how we are saved. That's in John chapter 3, right before he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Uh, That's what that reference is in verse 9, not to to put him to the test. And then verse 10, nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, I'm not sure exactly what this is a reference to. It's a little bit vague, Um, but it could be number 16, where the people were whining against Moses and against Aaron, and God sent a plague on them as judgment. So now, what's the point of all this? Why tell all these old stories? Verse 11. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, our teaching, our training, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. So he's saying the same things that you're being tempted with today, they were tempted with then. And here are the the consequences of their behavior then. (laughs) And there are consequences for our behavior now. Though we're saved by faith in Christ and our sin is forgiven, there are still consequences now for our sin. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. What's the temptation that they they were guilty of? Idolatry idolatry, worshiping other things instead of God, trusting other things instead of God. But he says, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So yes, you're facing the same kinds of temptations they face, but God makes a way out for you and you need to take it. Therefore, verse 14, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He's specifically talking to them about the issue of idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. 
So what was the temptation they faced in these Old Testament examples? Idolatry. What is the the church in Corinth facing? Idolatry. Understanding the city is going to be helpful. Corinth is a trading route. It's a spot where between two seas, you would have to, instead of going all the way down around the peninsula, you would cross over. And so Corinth was very metropolitan. It was very diverse. There were lots of different cultures present. You had Romans there. You had Jews there. You had Greeks there. You had uh, uh, people from Asia there. And they're all mixed into one place. And Along with that, you have lots of different forms of faith and, and worship and religions that are all converging in one place. So there's a lot of confusion over what is right and what is wrong. Historically, uh, it was a, uh, is it pantheistic? Is that the right term? Yes. Probably, maybe. Whatever. They had a bunch of different gods. They had a bunch of different gods. And... Um, in particular, in Corinth, actually, as I thought about Corinth, I thought, what modern-day city or what American city would it be close to? And I think that the closest thing I could land on was Miami. So, like, Corinth was very, was, is very Miami. Like, lots of different cultures coming together in one place and creating this kind of mishmash and lots of different religious beliefs. And it was definitely a party city, which, welcome to Miami, you know. Um, whoever's, watching this down, whoever's watching this down in Florida this week. Um, you know, I know not all of Florida is Miami. Dennis confirmed. Dennis confirmed. Pantheistic is the right term. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I say things and I'm like, I'm not sure if that's right. Um, <laughs> if I don't plan to say it, I don't, you know, but, um, but yeah, just think of it that way. And so one of the, one of the most well-known uh, locations in Corinth is the historical temple of Aphrodite or the temple of Artemis. And Aphrodite, again, PG, uh, Aphrodite is the goddess of uh, love and pleasure, okay? And before the city was destroyed one time, and it was like 132 BC, roughly, um, it was destroyed. Before then, in the temple, they actually would house a thousand priestesses of the goddess uh, Aphrodite or, or Artemis, uh, if you catch my drift. And so that sort of behavior, now we don't know exactly how many there were after the city was destroyed, but it certainly returned in some form. The point is, this is a city that celebrated that kind of excessive behavior or sensual behavior. It wasn't something that if you were from Corinth, you thought was wrong. It was something that was expected. In fact, in some cases, it was considered virtuous. In their culture. I know that's hard for us to wrap our head around, but understand that's why it's important for us to understand cultural context when we're reading scripture. It was celebrated, encouraged. And so, and, and then they, along with that, the, the worship of all of these gods, they would have, much like you would see, he talked with the, with the god Baal we talked about in the Old Testament, they would have feasts and festivals. They had temples to all of these gods in Corinth, and people would go and they would sacrifice animals. And then the, the meat from those sacrifices, some of it would feed the priestess, priestesses and the priests, some of it would be given away, and a lot of it was sold in the marketplace. You would go to the marketplace and you would buy meat and you wouldn't know whether it was just a farmer's meat or whether that meat came from a sacrifice that was made to a false god. 
You went to someone's party, they invited you over for their party, and maybe you didn't even know they were going to be worshiping this, this other God at that party, and you show up at it as a Christian. Or you show up at this, this person's house, and they start see, serving you meat, and you don't know where this meat came from. So you've got people in Corinth who've decided to put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, who want to be holy and who want to grow to become like him, but they don't know how in some cases. And they don't know how to say no to all of these things they've always been always said yes to. And they don't know how to deal with all of their friends who are worshiping these other gods now that they have changed their mind about what they believe. And they go over to the party and they don't know whether they should eat the meat or not. And they don't know whether that they should buy the meat out of the market or not. And they don't know whether they're supposed to behave the way that, that they behaved before. What, what had always been told to them was permissible or virtuous is now being told that is sinful. And they don't, they don't understand and they're trying to figure it out and they're trying to walk through it. And Paul says, hey, listen, so listen, nothing is overtaking you except which is common to man. Everybody struggles with these pressures and with these desires and what do we do with them and how do we overcome them and how do we choose what's righteous? And what he's telling them is you find yourself in that situation where the temptation is on, you need to ask God for a means of escape and you need to take it so that you can choose him above all other things. So you can choose him above all other gods. So that you can choose fulfillment from God instead of fulfillment from people and, and sensual behavior. And so in a lot of the book of Corinthians, that's what he's dealing with. That's what he's helping them to understand and understand and helping them process. They are adjusting to a new normal. And I believe the encouragement that he's giving to them is, it is a not inevitable that you are going to sin. You can stand up against all of this temptation that's around you, and you can make the right choices that are holy and that are honoring to God, but you're going to have to depend on God to do it. You are going to have to ask him for and see and take the means of escape so that you can flee from the pressure that is all around you to live and behave the way you have always lived and behaved so that your life will not be destroyed the way that it was for so many in the past. Learn from them and take your steps forward. It is not inevitable that you are going to sin if you desire holiness and are willing to do what God tells you to do. What is the application for us today? Sin does not have to destroy us because God can deliver us. You don't have to be owned by the sin in your life. And, and a lot of that, you already know. You know what the sin is. You know you're not supposed to be doing it. Or you know you're supposed to be doing it and you're not. You know you're not supposed to think that way. You know you're not supposed to act that way. You know you're not supposed to talk that way. You know you're supposed to do something different. But up until now, you just haven't asked God for the way out. Or you've asked him for it, and you haven't taken it. And you need to go all in 100% and do what he's telling you to do. Do what scripture is telling you to do. So that you can escape. We need to choose paths of righteousness. David, who's someone we learn from in the Old Testament, who had lots of issues, 
lots of problems. As great as he was, slaying giants and becoming the king of Israel and all of that. You know, the guy had some serious flaws and he knew it. He knew it and he struggled with them. Psalm 23, maybe the most famous psalm in the entire Bible, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, leads me, guides me, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So even though David struggled, and even though he made lots of mistakes, which he works through in a lot of the Psalms, he still knew that God was leading him in paths of righteousness. And he needed to follow him, and he needed to trust him, and he needed to listen to him. Because God's desire for him, and God's desire for you, and God's desire for me is better than the world's desire for us. A lot of those things we know we're aware of. Some of them are sneaky, though. Sometimes we're not even aware of the sin that we have in our life because our culture has conditioned us to think that they're normal when they're not normal. We have to be so, this is, this is, this was the sneaky thing in Corinth. The things that they had grown up being told were safe and were normal and were virtuous. They're now finding out that they're not, and they have to decide, they have to make a decision on whether they agree with God or they agree with their culture. All of this noise that's around them telling them what to do. I'm just going to say this as clearly as I can. I, I venture a guess everybody watching this is in the United States of America or lives in the United States of America. If we've gone international, it would be a surprise to me. American culture is not biblical culture. It's not. You can't, there are aspects, maybe, but you can't read the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus and tell me that's America. You can't do it. We need to be aware of the fact that many of the things that we grow up in our own culture believing are true or normal or honoring to God are not in fact that. So to be able to see that, believe it, and ask for God to change our mind is a significant endeavor for us to take. Let me give you some examples. We live in a we live in a culture, a society that celebrates power. But Jesus said, "Blessed are the meek." We celebrate power, but Jesus said, "Blessed are the meek." Which doesn't mean that the powerless it's those who keep understand their power and keep it under control. Those that would use it for the benefit of others and for the good of, of society, of all people, for the benefit of God and the glory of God, not for the benefit of themselves. Yet selfish power is it's everywhere. Everywhere. We live in a society that celebrates wealth as an end. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Why? Because wealth becomes an idol. 
Power becomes an idol. Wealth becomes an idol. Money, having things, all the security that it brings, that becomes a God for us. And we live in a culture that will push you to that and push you to that and push you to that and push you to that. Materialism, selfish ambition. It is a, in the words of one of my favorite hip hop artists, a foolish religion. It's a foolish religion to think that wealth and possessions is going to fulfill you and give you what you want. But you, I promise you, you cannot turn on the TV and watch even two commercials without being sold the idea that wealth will make you happy. Having this thing will make you happy. It will fulfill you. And it won't. It's a lie. But we have been raised in a culture that tells us that is true. It's not true. Blessed are the poor because the poor at least understand that all they have is God. They understand their need. They understand that they can be fulfilled regardless of how much they have or they don't have. We live in a society that celebrates fame. That if you're known, you're important. That if you're skilled at something, you're valuable. Jesus said, blessed are the humble. Not the prideful, the humble. Not those who parade themselves out in front of everybody and get on every show they can get on and get their face on every paper that they can get in. Do they make papers anymore? They make newspapers. That still works. Online versions, every blog. We, have, we, we live in a culture that celebrates fame. You know, who, you know who had no desire to be famous even while he was here? Jesus, even though he deserved to be famous. He, every time he got, yeah, just, just just pointed out, every time he started getting a big following of people, you know what he did? He ran up, either he ran off or he ran them off. He wasn't interested in just having, in being famous and being known by everyone. He wanted to be effective. He was humble, even to the point of death on the cross. We live in a, in a, in a culture that celebrates self-empowerment and the human spirit. And we're hearing a lot of that these days. We can overcome the power of the human spirit if we just all band together. We can rise above this. But Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Those who are, blessed are those who are hurting, who realize that they aren't strong, but that God is strong. in a society that celebrates controversy. Oh, we love differing opinions. We love drastic statements. We love people getting put in their place or putting people in their place. We love a good fight. <laughs> Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. live in a society that celebrates pleasure. Make yourself feel good. You do you. Whatever makes you happy, if it makes you feel good. But Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who pursue honoring God with their life, not honoring themselves with their life. 
we live in a society that is largely built on pride, self-interest, lifting yourself up. You know what happens when you lift yourself up? You end up pushing other people down. This, listen, we're, we're, we are, our society is facing a lot of stuff right now. You can, I do watch some news. I know what's going on. You know what's going on in our country right now. I feel ill-equipped to talk about the ramifications of everything and all of the situations and why this or why that. But I can tell you one thing, as I look at everything that's happening, you can draw all of it back to one core thing. And it's me thinking that I am better or more valuable than someone else. That is what is at the heart of the problem with our country. That I think I am more valuable than you. And I think that people who are like me, who look like me, who think like me, who dress like me, who talk like me, who believe like me, are inherently more valuable than someone who doesn't. And so, whether I realize it or not, I treat other people differently because I don't value them the same way I value myself. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think we realize how hard that is. And so I don't think that we give it the attention it needs to be given in our life. To truly, first of all, make sure that our life is bringing glory and honor to God instead of bringing glory to ourselves. And then also to make sure that I am looking at other people and I am thinking of them with the same value that I think of myself. No matter how they dress or how they look, what the color of their skin is, what neighbor they come, neighborhood they come from, how much money they have or they don't have, what position they have or they don't have, how much fame they have or they don't have, none of that matters for me to look at other people and to realize they are of equal value as me. If not more in my own mind. And when you look at Jesus' life, what you see is a person who deserved to put himself on a pedestal if he wanted to, but chose not to, humbled himself, humbled himself. And Jesus, the king of the universe, looked at people that were that were despised and cast out and rejected and looked at as if they had no value whatsoever. And he treated them with the same value. He humbled himself. We live in a culture, and if I'm thinking about this, this passage and how they were applying it to themselves then, and I'm thinking about how we apply it to ourselves now, we need to be very very careful to flee from idolatry. Whether that idol, idol, that idol is someone else, someone who's famous, someone who's rich, someone who's powerful, whether that idol is a thing, money or wealth, a house or a car, or whether that idol is ourselves.
But take heart. No temptation has come on you that is not that is uncommon to man. We are all in the same boat. We are all fighting the same fight. The goal for all of us is the same, righteousness. And God will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So if you want to break free from the idolatry that exists in your life and the sin that happens as a result of it and the destruction that happens as a result of it, we have to ask God for wisdom in the way of escape. Show me how to change. Show me how to think differently. Show me how to act differently. Show me how to believe differently. Show me what to do differently. And when he shows us that, we have to take it. And the hard part is that because we live in a world with billions of people in it, the reality is the majority of people will not make the right decisions, will not make that kind of commitment. In fact, the vast minority will make that kind of commitment. We have to deal with all of the stuff that happens as a result and do what we can to show people a different way, to show them what it looks like to truly love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. And the point of 1 Corinthians 10 is Paul saying, you need God's help to do that. But if you lean on him, you can follow him in paths of righteousness. So we know we need God's help. Let's go to him now and let's ask him to move in our hearts and in our lives. God, I thank you so much. We know that this phrase, will God ever give, will you ever give us more than we can handle? I, I know that you do put us in situations that are more than we can handle so we can learn to trust you. The fact is that we are weak and we give in to temptation. We know that you will always provide a means of escape for us. So I pray for everybody who's watching this, that we would just all be making the same decision, that we want to be like Christ. As much as we can, we want to be holy and we want to be righteous. We want to walk on your path. Not for our sake, but for your sake. That's what David said. You, you lead him in paths of righteousness for your glory. So God, I ask you to do that for us. It begins, and there, there may be someone you know, watching this today who, who doesn't know where to start. And we know that it begins by putting our faith in Jesus for salvation. To believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me. To pay for my sin. Because I can't overcome it. And I believe, Jesus, that you rose again. God, based on that decision, someone may have made it for the first time today or maybe you made it years ago. Based on that decision, we know that we're, we're forgiven and we know that we're saved, but we watch things continue to crumble around us and though we don't have control of everything, a lot of it's our own fault. We could do something, but we can only do something. We can only change with your help and your power to see differently, to see through your eyes to see what is true. And so God, I ask that you would give all of us clarity. Help us to see where idolatry lives in our life. What have we made idols? And give us the wisdom and the path to choose differently. 
Give us the strength, the fortitude to do what you tell us to do. To learn to think the way that you want us to think. And as we do that, we trust that you're with us and that you're guiding us, strengthening us, and that as we take each step, you have the next one in front of us as well. We need your help. We're trusting in you for your glory. It's in your name we pray.